Welcome to episode 172 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. A few weeks ago, it was Veterans Day in the United States. I took a few minutes to think about the people in my life who have served and then sent a personal message to a few of them, thanking them for their service. A simple thanks. The response was incredibly positive and heartwarming. There are so many opportunities to share gratitude and so often we don't even do the simple thanks, which is why I received such a strong response. Over the last three decades, I've managed hundreds of events, all of which relied in one way or another on volunteers and skilled staff. So whenever I'm at an event, I make sure to thank the volunteers and tell the team lead when a staff member offers exceptional service. It takes such little effort and is deeply appreciated. I make it a practice of an attitude of gratitude and to share praise or thanks whenever and wherever I can. Often it's about noticing the little things, like thanking my wife when she's decluttered our entryway or my kids when their bedtime routine goes smoothly. Sometimes it's about showing up when someone needs it. I recently visited a dear friend when she and her husband were facing health challenges. Yes, they shared their appreciation with me, but it was mutual gratitude. I was grateful I could be there for them. Your challenge for this week, a simple thank you goes a long way. Add a twist by saying, I appreciate you, I'm thankful for, or I'm grateful for, when acknowledging their extra effort. Share gratitude privately and also publicly. Show up and support when someone needs it. And remember to thank the people who believed in you when you're recognized for your success. Try this and let me know how it goes. Now, onto this week's show. Today's guest is seasoned in leading difficult conversations on race, class, and gender. By doing so, she helps build resilient, equitable, and inclusive organizations. She's over 20 years of experience creating, leading, and managing international multicultural teams through major organizational changes in over 40 countries. She designed and administered more than 150 global programs that directly engaged half a million people into action and almost 1 million people indirectly through the creation of global strategies. In addition, she also led one of the largest humanitarian grants programs in the country while working at Rotary International. As a nonprofit consultant and facilitator, she believes that to create work of depth and meaning, leaders need to fully engage both their creativity and their intellect. Through her company, Attaway Group, she helps organizations make full use of both capabilities to create strong narratives that showcase not just the data, but the story behind the data. Please join me in welcoming Desiree Attaway. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks so much for joining us from your office in Asheville, North Carolina. It's really a pleasure. And I have to give a shout out to Pamela Slim for making this introduction happen. Uh, Everyone can go check out her interview as well. But this is, as you know, a show about building strong networks. And the context is leadership because to to achieve success in a field industry, uh, you're not doing it alone. So you're someone who's, who's done that. How would you say you define leadership? And when did you realize you had the skills to lead? Well, I th- I think for me, um, I don't I don't necessarily identify myself as a leader. I think that's something that you don't get to call yourself like ally, 
right? Like, I think that's a name that other people give you and other people have called me a leader. Um, but I think I first begun to lead in air quotes as a, as a young kid. Like I have always um, really listened to my gut and knew, you know, if no one was going to kind of step in that I had the ability um, and the right to do that. I, I actually lead more from not as this individual, but the work that I do now and the work I've always done is ultimately about the collective, right? How do we build deeper, stronger, right relationships with each other? Mm-hmm. And for me, that's a lot of modeling of how I want to be in community with people and how I show up, um, the tone, the language, connection, commitment. Um, and for me, when my community is safe and happy and free, um, then uh, I feel like, and, and when I see my community leading themselves, right, I'm a big believer in people power. I believe in like leader full. We don't need one. We need everybody. I am a big believer in we, the greatest leaders are leading from the back of the room and not the front of the room. Um, and so for me, when my community is safe and happy and well and thriving, then that's how I know that my leadership is um, being used to its best ability. Mm, I really like this. And I love that you you dug back to uh, early early part of your life and and how you were as a child. Because I'm actually always curious about that with my guests. You know, where do you think this ability to sort of act in your gut comes from? Is there someone who modeled that for you? No, I actually am asked that a lot and I don't know where it came from, but I just know, I, I don't, I really wish I could be like, this thing happened in this moment. Um, but I've always listened to me. And and I think part of that is being right uh, a black woman that navigated a lot of predominantly white spaces is that I, I relied on myself and I relied on my gut and my, my knowing um, to get me through. And I've just constantly, I just have always yeah. kept that. Did you seek out formal titles early on or were you really just trying to be the sort of organizer in the room who were inspiring others to step into their own leadership? You know, it's so funny. I sit back and I think I never wanted official titles, but, uh, you know, I must have like, you know, other people wanted to be cheerleader. I don't want to be a cheerleader. I wanted to manage the cheerleaders. <laughs> I, I did. I managed them, right? Like I, I wanted to determine like how things are going to work out. Uh, and I'm not a control freak, but that kind of cracks me up. And then, um, yeah, like I always had, you know, president roles, leadership, like all these titles that were given to me through other people. And, you know, I didn't necessarily need them. Um, I think for me, uh, you can call me whatever. <laughs> yeah. I don't care. You know but, what I mean? But like, you want to get the work done. And but, if that but helps. For me, it's about getting the work done. So how do we leave yeah. that ego behind, right? This kind of uh, sense of I have to be the expert. I have to know it all. You know, my company is called the Attaway Group. And it's called the Attaway Group because it's not just me. I don't rely just on my skill set and my ability. 
I have all these amazing colleagues who come with so much knowledge and that I'm like, oh, this is the problem. Yeah, I got two or three people in my network who have those skill sets and we can do that solution. I was literally just on a call before this with a client and we're doing an equity audit for their organization, but they need some, uh, you know, some pay transparency and some making sure that their pay scale is equitable. And I have this amazing data scientist that I work with who I'm like, yep, Heather can build those models and we can figure out this, we, we can crack this nut around how live experience is compared to professional experience and how we can be equitable in our pay for folks who maybe have never gone to college, but did years and years of community organizing. And what's that value in the job market? Mm -hmm. So I just say all that to say, I know that I don't have to know everything um, or I, and I never pretend to know everything because I have enough folks in my circle who, uh, who have those skills. Yeah, it's clear to me why you are a good fit for this, this show, because this show about relationships, right? So I'm, I'm just curious before we move on from this, it, how would you, in like a succinct way, define leadership then? Like you, I think you use a lot of great language around it, but I'm, I'm curious if you were to describe what you are aspiring to be recognized as, since it's not a title you bestow upon yourself, which I get, and I, I really appreciate I'm, the distinction. I, I just aspire to be... I aspire to be one of one of the collective. I really do. Um, I aspire more for, so I keep the word liberation on my body, but my work is about liberation. It's about freeing those who are most marginalized. So I guess for me, it is about moving, leadership for me is moving that which is on the margins to the center. So good. I know one has described it in that way on the show. I've done so many of these. Uh, moving from the folks who are on the margins to the center. I, I love that. Yeah, and I think and letting, it's a visual. Letting, letting, letting that help to define, right? Building mm. our systems and policies and structures to give the most support to those that have been on the margins. So, and it's not saying that the folks who are centered right now don't have a voice, but it's saying, you know what? It's not a limited amount of pie. We got room for all of us mm-hmm. and we can make room for those in the margins to really step in. Yeah. Make a bigger pie. That's and make a bigger pie. Yeah. That's great. So as you were moving from childhood into young adulthood, did you have a clear sense of how you were going to apply this passion? No idea. No idea. No. When I met, I met Pam in college. I don't know if Pam told you we met our freshman year of college. Day one, we've been best friends for 35 years. Um, I mean, best friends, like we talk to each other every day for 35 years. And, um, yeah, I was gonna, I was actually gonna move to Africa and dig wells. Like I was studying international development, um, which I did development work as a funder for a lot of years with Rotary, but I just had no idea what that was going to be. And leadership has shown up with me in institutions. Um, you know, managing departments and divisions um, and, you know, international teams, um, living abroad and and just really um, kind of learning humbly. You know, I think I think for me, part of being a leader is being humble and always learning. So you stay relevant. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think so many folks get to a certain title or a certain level and they stop learning. Organizations stop giving them learning opportunities. They themselves stop putting in that effort of, of, of consuming good content and learning from new folks. And, um, and I just, I'm always want to be a learner and in being a learner, I think that allows me to be humble because I know there's so much I don't know, which also allows me to be relevant. Yeah. You never want to be the smartest person in the room. I never want to be the smartest (laughs) person in the room. And I also need to know, I don't need to know it's now. I need to know it's three years from now. Mm -hmm. Right. So, and that's for my perspective, like in the work that I do around equity and inclusion, right. I'm like, I know what's happening now. I'm like, so what is this sector going to be three years from now? Because that's those things are what I want to be digging into right now and learning. Mm-hmm. I think that's important. This is a, another leadership aspect is to be looking ahead. You know, a lot of people don't have that capacity. They're so focused on the now because they have to be. So anyone who's able to lift their head up and look at the horizon and try to envision what's coming and prepare people for it and direct people to the resources to get them to that next thing, you know, that's, that's a clear role uh, that you're, you're filling, you know, in some way or another. I, I'm so curious, like, about your career trajectory before you were doing this as a, as a, you know, through your own company, were you sort of seeking out different roles within larger companies and learning? Like, I feel like learning is such a through line for you. Was that always with a sense that you were going to go on your own or was the going on your own sort of a byproduct that came? Oh God, I was never going on my own. <laughs> I love that. I, yeah. I, I, no, I, I, I was not, ne- I had no plan. Like Pam had probably owned her own business at that point for 10, 10 ish years when I went out on my own. Um, I'd never had any plan to, I was perfectly fine, you know, making my way up through the latter senior director, VP level work. Yeah, I actually, um, two things happened. My youngest daughter turned 16 and I was a single parent and I was like, oh, what do I do when this one leaves my house? Um, I had no idea. And so I got a coach and started uh, thinking about what does that mean to, what did I want for myself? So I did that. And then while that was happening, um, there was a bunch of changes happening in the organization I was working with. And uh, I'd had like, I don't know, in the seven years there, probably had six managers. And I, I am a person who likes change. I can handle a lot of change. And even now, even I was getting to the point where I was like, this is enough change. And um Uh, Honestly, it was, I got into it with the folks in HR about giving someone on my team a promotion. They applied for a job. Out of all the candidates, they were the best candidate. So I wanted to give them the job and they did not want me to give them the title. And I was like, wait, but if this was an external person coming in, they would have gotten the title. Why didn't this person get the title? And um, so I got into it with HR about this thing. And the, my boss at the time agreed with HR and I just sat there and wrote my resignation letter and said, okay, I'm out. See y'all. And I didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, and a friend came up to me and said, Hey, I have this little project. 
I'm working on. They were a consultant, you know, and they were like, I don't know if you are interested, but here's a little piece that, you know, you could have if you want. And that little piece of that project made more than I was making in a month. So I took that as a sign that I could leave my job. Yeah. And I left my job with one daughter in college and another on the way. So I I knew I had to make it work. And I give myself like five years and it wasn't working in five years. I would go back and work for somebody else. Um, But I I made it work. And so. How long has it been now? uh, I just had my ninth anniversary. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah. In August, it was nine years. So um, what was so so talk about this transition, because I think this is a thing that a lot of people get to that point of frustration working in office. I mean, for me. I was working for a nonprofit that I absolutely loved. It was a dream job that I got at 30. I stayed there for a decade. And in my last year, everyone in my department left. And I had a new boss who was there for less than a year and everyone came in after him. And it makes you realize that the mission could be really great, but the people are super important. Like, Like that's not enough. And I had been doing all this on the side. So it was sort of like easier to like shift away. Nothing was holding me there. And I got this advice from Dory Clark, who's been a good friend and mentor for so long. At some point, you'll know because your job will get in the way of your business. Right. And it yeah. sounds like you, you didn't have like the side hustle started up, but you right. had relationships and people knew both the value of what you could bring, your skills you had, and that you were you know, ready to step in. So you, you left not starting from scratch because you had people in your life. I mean, those relationships... I did. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm so fortunate and appreciative. I, my best friend's a business coach. Duh. Right. My best friend's a business coach. I know lawyers and I know accountants and I know tax people and I know like all entrepreneurs, right. All who do this for a living and they were already in my circle. So You know, I'll never forget when I'm like, oh, I need. So one thing that I had done is I'd started blogging a year before I left. And so I and I had been on social media. So I built up this little social media presence and I've been blogging, but nobody knew where I worked. All right. But I was just blogging around nonprofit stuff. And so then the day I quit. (laughs) I was like, okay, I can put all this information on here now about, all, right, like really my where I work and what I do. Um, so having said all that, while I had not planned on doing this, I was so incredibly privileged to have access to so many resources, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And, and, and I had the network. So one job led to another job, which led to another job which led to another job, which then led to no jobs because I wasn't smart enough to know that, oh, I must always be constantly doing business development because they were coming to me. And then I looked up and I was like, oh, wait, <laughs> I don't have any work, right? And so then, you know, Pam is like, everything you do is business development. So, yeah, so I was very fortunate and since that while I didn't go looking for it, um, it has been a real amazing gift in my life mm-hmm. to be able to work for myself and do the work that I want to do 
with an amazing group of people, colleagues, other uh, contractors that I work with on a regular and really impact um, a lot of sectors. I, I mean, my clients are from Fortune 500 companies to solopreneurs. Yeah. And and is it still building off the same expertise or do you feel like you shifted? Oh, I totally shifted. I shifted yeah. about five years ago. So I would say before five years ago, my focus was a lot of just straight organizational development. Right, right. I come in, I know programming back and forth. Let me come in, let me get your program staff right. But one thing I did always sell is oh, you're about to lose funding. Like I'm a fixer, right? I can come in and get your staff right and get your programs right. I I can do all those things. And so I did that um, the first four years, just coming in and doing that kind of work, evaluating your programs, giving you recommendations. And um, I was also coaching. uh, I have an activist background. And so I was coaching a lot of activists. And a lot of folks that were on the ground doing uh, during the Ferguson uprising and the Baltimore uprising and some of those. And um, and my work kept evolving because when I would go into organizations and we'd be doing org development work, as I started digging through the layers, the real work was people couldn't have difficult conversations across race, class and gender. They were not having really important conversations around identity. They were not creating cultures where people felt seen and heard and supported. Uh, They just focused on diversity and didn't think about equity or inclusion or justice. And so over the past five years, that has been wholly what my work has focused on, is how do we have more just organizations and institutions? What does inclusion really look like? Diversity is something you count. Inclusion is what you feel and is inclusion is what keeps people. Uh, so how do we create inclusive organizations? Oh, gosh, this is so speaking my language here. And um, the way I've been approaching this is actually a little more granular. I've been approaching it around association conferences. Um, you know, like when someone shows up, how do they feel like they belong? Uh, particularly the first year or two when they really don't know anyone and they they aren't plugged into like maybe the affinity groups that are existing. Um, how do they, how do they find their way to their people and feel like this is a place for me to grow and learn and bring that, that energy and learning back to their organizations. Right. So it's, it's, it's very similar in the sense that if you're not welcoming people, they're going to show up, circle the room and leave, (laughs) you know, in an organization, they're going to get hired and then it's going to be like, well, they weren't a good quote fit. And that's really language for you just didn't make an effort to make them have space. Well, my favorite is we want a cultural fit. And I'm like, you just want people who think like you and look like you because it makes it easier for you to manage them then. And we don't really want to manage people. Yeah. Right. Um, We don't want people to show up with these complex identities. When people are like, we want people to show up as their authentic selves. I'm like, you're lying. No, you don't. You want people to show up as their authentic business self. Because if you want, if you allow people to show up as yourselves, you wouldn't make introverts perform extroversion. Which is what they have to do a lot in workspaces, right? Like how many times do you go to a meeting and an introvert who is probably an amazing staff member, you know, but because they need a little bit more time to think about and to, you know, 
process some of these things because they don't speak up right there in that moment, in that time and give you that little pithy, cute answer. You're like, oh yeah, Robbie wasn't really, you know, he's not really committed to this work. And you're like, what? Wait. Well, and so funny because a lot of that is why aren't people giving them agenda items and questions ahead of time? I'm an, I'm an outgoing expert to the extreme and I you know, I'm answering the question before you finished asking it. It's like, that's who I am. But I had, this is a learning, this is a leadership learning for me was recognizing the difference in how people approach that. And that the more organized I am about preparation for meetings and that kind of thing, it allows your whole team to to participate. And I also think that sometimes people read people wrong. Like just because someone's outgoing doesn't mean they're not an introvert. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And you know what? So, hey, here, here are some questions that we're leaving this meeting with. Robbie, I know you need a little bit more time to process. I'm going to follow up with you in two days. Yeah, brilliant. Right, really? Does that take that much long to, to do that? Mm-hmm. But again, um, yeah, there are all Making kinds space. of ways right, that that dominant culture shows up in our workspaces and in our culture. And I always say, you know, it's it's. And we never talk about power. And I think that's one thing. If I were to acknowledge what good leaders do, good leaders always acknowledge power differentials and talk about power and Mm -hmm. shared power and what that looks like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that you're able to name that when you're talking about inclusion, I I love that you're broadening it from just race, right? Even just giving the example around extroversion, introversion, which everyone has experienced feeling around that some one or the other, um, particularly when you're the new person. I mean, this is actually where power comes in. If you've been on a team for a long time, then people will adjust to you a little bit. If you're new, no one's making room for you and you've got to really adapt to the culture that exists. And you're not yet creating the culture with people. Like you're just being handed, this is how things are done. And you'll be like, ah, I got to just go with it. So how are people, I, I like that you're really thinking so holistically about this. Is that something that came from working with all these different types of clients and realizing the problem they had was actually one they couldn't name? Like, oh, Yeah, like because nobody can name, like what are these kind of valued identities at your job, right? So then, so, so say extroversion is a valued identity and I'm a new, young, first job, black woman. And I'm an introvert. And I have to literally come in there and perform extroversion, right? Because we also know that biases and other things show up. So maybe I come in and I'm quiet and I don't speak a lot. And we've we've seen the reports, right, where people are like, well, you know, Desiree didn't come in and she's not really talkative and she doesn't really hang out with us and she doesn't talk to us. And so, you know, let me write her up as being not a, you know, not a friendly team member. So you have to think about all the ways, you know, you can have this data about introverts and extroverts, but then when you disaggregate that with other identities like gender or race, religion, right? Some of these, a class, right? If everyone around you went to an elite school except you, what does that mean? Yeah, yeah. How does that show up? And then you, you disaggregate that data again with race, gender, you know, all these other things, then, and then you're like, oh, that, that's why they were leaving. So as you were building up this, this company, uh, has it grown? I know you have lots of, uh, I guess you're calling them contractors, you know, people, you know, that you have pieces of the work that you do. 
was there a moment where you thought, I really need actual staff. I need people to help me. Because nine years, like yeah, I, gotta- I wrote. It's so funny. Pam, Pam has this conversation with me once a year, and every, and I'm very adamant. No, and, and I know this is my own hot spot in my mind. Uh huh. Um, and it may make no sense. And I know if I did have an employee or two, I probably would make more money right? Because I have a set salary for them and I could just give them money, uh, work and a a bonus and some other things. And I could probably make more money. But I, um, I, I feel like for me, again, this is a value that I have around the collective and splitting and sharing this work as well as the the spoils from this work. Right. And so, um, if I'm working with somebody on a contract, I am usually really good about splitting it 50, 50 or 45, 55, depending on how much administrative support that I need to, because people, you know, they hired me in my company and then I contract out. Um, but I, um, I never want to be responsible for somebody's salary. Mm. That just feels like a stress. I can handle stress, but when I'm only responsible for me and my salary, it makes it's different. You, well, yeah, you make different decisions. I make yeah. different decisions. Yeah. As opposed to me being responsible for two people on payroll, then then I'm probably then I'm probably going to not take as many risks as I normally would. Um, and probably not explore new um, uh, kind of program options and Yeah. Uh, So an example is I do these equity audits and I started doing these about three, four years ago. And they happened because I was working with a family foundation that had these fellows and major nonprofits. And this one nonprofit kept having problems. They've had uh, fellows of color like three years in a row and three years in a row there were issues with them working there. And I said something like, you know, I wish we could just go in to these places and do like an audit around how they are supporting staff of color um, or marginalized identities within these structures. And uh, the people that ran the family foundation looked at me and said, do it. We'll, we'll pay for you to do this to, for all of these seven sites. So I did it for them at a really low cost because I wanted to create the tool and test the tool, right? So they paid me to test the tool with about seven nonprofits and have spent the last four years refining the tool and now charge way more for equity audits, right? Um, and, And give organizations really good data for them to, and good recommendations for them to think about what needs to happen to make their culture uh, more inclusive. So as you made this shift early on and as you made this transition four years in, what was the challenge for you being your own boss? Like, was there something, like, it sounds like you had a ton of resources, right? Well, but- it was me knowing that I actually am not the statistician, right? Like I needed to, I, I can do a lot of things, but those are things I can't do. I'm not a data scientist and I'm, and um, I, 
I running statistical models is not something I can do. And so I, uh, I had to find some folks and those folks I found through other people and, you know, I'm like, let's, let's, let's just do a small project together and see how that works. Right. A little testing out. Let's date each other for a minute. See if we like each other. And, um, and we really have. And, and But I also am someone that is very clear, um, especially this, uh, I have one colleague, Jessica, shout out to Jessica Fish, who I work with a lot. And, um, you know, I, I say to her all the time, if I ever think that us working together is somehow harming you as an individual, I will absolutely stop working with you. Right. Because your friendship and our relationship and us being in right relationship is way more than any of this work that we could possibly do together. So speaking of relationships, then this is actually a great segue to talking specifically about what kinds of habits or philosophies or practices you have for nurturing and sustaining your ever growing network. So you had like that close core group people and then you've got that sort of second and third tiers out people maybe from a decade ago before you were even an entrepreneur, people from five years ago, former colleagues, former clients, how are you nurturing and sustaining those broader connections? Like, do you have a, a system, a habit or a happenstance? Like, you know, it's, a, it's, it's a habit. I don't have a system. I don't have some fancy CRM. That's like, you need to reach out to this person. I am, I have a core group of, you know, my peeps that I talk to every day, every day I talk to them. Pam Slim is one of them. And then um, I have this really core group of folks that I can go to with like business questions, right? Or they're my water cooler, right? So I'm like, I got this issue happening with this client. Y'all help me think through like what this should look like or so I have that group of folks. I actually have a small group, a mastermind of folks who are, I'm the only one that does the work that I do. Everybody does different work, but we come together um, twice a month. And of the group of five, four of us, it's five total, um, two are just kind of starting off their business. And the other three of us, we've had a, like a 10, nine, 10 year businesses. So we've been mentoring and helping to support those folks. And you just make the time for me talking to folks, sending, you know, readings to people after I do a training with them, you know, following back up and say, you know, with a client I had three years ago who I don't have currently, oh, I saw this, you know, in Harvard Business Review. I know that this could be interesting. Yeah. And I don't have a lot, you know, I send it through phone. I don't, you know, let's talk. I, you know, it's not a bunch of, it's not a big deal. It's just like, hey, I was thinking about y'all. Here's an article I thought you could find helpful. And I just, that way I find that if I just reach out to people in a real authentic way, even if it's a text or private message, um, people appreciate it. Oh, they totally do. And and I, I think part of what you're talking about is that there is a sort of a habit forming piece to this. I, I remember talking to a coaching client who told me that she was at an event and was talking to someone. And as they were having a conversation, she thought of a book that was a great 
fit for their conversation, but the moment passed. So she didn't get to share it. And then she said, but you'd be proud of me. I, I, I always do my follow-up messages. I said, did you mention the book? She goes, no. <laughs> and I was like, wait, can you connect the dots for me? And she's like, ah, she was sort of doing the like rote follow-up, like the nice to meet you follow-up. But here she had like a resource that was a good fit and didn't say it. And I think seeing the connections and then actually following through and making the like, Hey, I thought of this. And, you know, sometimes I think of a person and then I go and look for an article to send them. I send books to people all the time. It's great. I mean, I know Amazon's evil, but I have it on, right. It's on my phone. So I just go right in there and I'm like, Oh, let me, let me send this. This person would love this book. Let me send them this book. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very memorable. People aren't going to toss a book. Right. And they're like, oh my God, thank you for thinking about me. Yeah. And I'm like, I've been enjoying this. I thought you would as well. Or, you know, uh, so yeah. So I just think it's really, um, for me, being in right relationship is core and essential to my work. It is what I, I talk about. It is a core value of mine. Um and and that means how I show up with people. And, and I'm very, very clear. The way I show up in social media is the way I am in life. So I use my name. <laughs> I say all the things, including some bad words, right? Like, because that's who I am. And I don't try to hide any of that. And I know folks are like, oh, my God, like, what if her, you know, what if her client sees this? And I'm like, then they see it. And if I'm not their person, then that's okay. Oh, that's so good. Um, I'm out trans dad and I am queer and progressive and you're going to see all of that on my stuff. And it's not like, it's, I can't imagine the effort it would take to compartmentalize. I'm not hiding any of this, right? Yeah. Like, none of it. And I say to people yeah. all the time, right? Like, so um, there was a, somebody sent me this RFP the other day to do some, to do a job with, um, a municipality and it was like doing this two-year gig and it's like training firemen and all this stuff. And it was like training the police. And I was like, Oh, no, thank you. Right. In part because my, who I am and you've read any of my stuff, you've seen any of my things, right. You know, I lean towards abolitionists, right? Like I'm, I'm like, we need better systems than what we have. Policing is killing folks, right? And people listening, I come from a family of policemen and we know that the system is failing us, right? Nevertheless. So, but I show up fully as myself. Well, that also attracts to you the people who appreciate who you are. The right people. Yeah. It's like, it's, I think this is actually a lesson that a lot of people have a hard time learning because they try to be all things to all people and they're afraid of not being liked. And I think the oh, moment absolutely. you stop worrying about that, right? The moment you stop worrying and you are you, then the people who show up, you no longer question whether they actually like you because the people who show up, well, they uh, do like Robbie, you. It's like you read my Facebook page. Like <laughs> I just say it all the time. Like it's, I, I actually don't care if you like me. I care if we're getting free. I care if we're in right. Like there are so many things I care more about than you liking me or agreeing with me. Right. And uh, so 
it's funny, like when I talk to clients, especially when I'm coming in to do a training, like, you know, I'm like, did you read my website? You know, and we talk about things and I say to them, let's be clear. I'm going to start us off with some shared language. And I always use diversity, equity, inclusion as part of my shared language. But I also always use anti-Blackness, anti-Semitism and xenophobia. I'm like, we're not going to have these conversations and not talk about how anti-Blackness shows up, right? Or how transphobia shows up or homophobia shows up. Like, we're not going to pretend like this isn't happening within these organizations. And so I always tell people we can hold each other accountable and we can hold each other with care. Mm-hmm. That's so good. Work, right? We can do this very hard, difficult work and stay in community with each other. And we have to see accountability. And I guess for me, this is another core leadership piece. Actually, it is. And I've been playing with this more and more. I think there's some core skills that we don't think about when we come to leadership. One is understanding forgiveness and reconciliation as core leadership competencies. Mm -hmm. How do you reconcile issues with the entire team publicly, right? Um, And the other thing that I really think about is how can we build teams and leaders that think of accountability, not as punitive, but as as deep love and kinship, right? Mm -hmm. So if I hold you accountable, Robbie, it's not because I'm trying to destroy you. It's because I actually love and care about you. Yeah, that's a big shift for people. And when you, visually as people of privilege, um, I think when I'm held to account for my behavior, then I know that the person is usually a person who's doing a lot of extra work in the world to show up. So when they're now putting energy into helping me show up as a better person, I have to be thanking them, you know? And it's like, well, wow. Okay. You saw that and didn't just walk away from our relationship. That's right. You're like, you, you could do better and I'm going to help. by And I know you can do better and we're going to do better together because that's what we do for the collective because that's what community does for one another. So one of my favorite uh, questions here as we wrap up then is as we're connecting, I I hope we stay in touch in a year from now, let's say we are out somewhere and we are celebrating all of your success in the previous year. What are we going to be toasting? What are you most looking forward to in the year ahead? This will probably be, it'll, it'll be a really big year in terms of financially for my company. Um, But you know what I'm going to be toasting? I'm going to be toasting really good work, like um, more um, bigger and better opportunities for more learning. Um, I'm going to be toasting, finding um, frameworks and new teachers so that I can show up better for my community and in my work. Um, that's what I'm hoping. Wow. And, and yeah. that, and that a year from now, I am, um, I'm living into, uh, what, so one of, I always say my greatest teachers have all been black queer women. Um, and that I am living into Audre Lorde's phrase of being deliberate and afraid of nothing. That's beautiful. And I can't wait to see how this all <laughs> unfolds over the next year. It sounds like it's going to be a, another amazing year for you. So uh, Desiree, how can people find you and follow your work? 
I'm at DesireeAdaway.com, D-E-S-I-R-E-E-A-D-A-W-A-Y. Um, and that is at Desiree Attaway for Facebook, at Desiree Attaway for Instagram, at Desiree Attaway for Twitter. Um, just because you have a G-rated show, if you come on Twitter, I get very political um, on Twitter. So just a warning. <laughs> just a little word of warning. Just that a was a, a parental note, but it's okay. It's being read as opposed <laughs> it's so to funny. heard. <laughs> I have a client who's, who's like 13-year-old daughter started to follow me on Instagram. And she's like, my daughter follows you on Instagram. And I was like, no. And she was like, no, she loves it. I know exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Good to know what you're walking into. So we're going to put all those links in the show notes at onthischmooze.com. Desiree, thanks for a really awesome conversation. Thank you so much, Robbie. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Desiree. Such a pleasure to speak with her and learn about her leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share it resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 172. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as over 170 archived episodes on this Pinterest-inspired page. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. I gotta say, I am really looking forward to 2020. My goal is 50 speaking engagements. In particular, I help associations inspire lifelong membership by creating welcoming and inclusive first-timer experiences. If you're in an association, I would love an introduction. I also enjoy speaking at women's leadership conferences because my approach to relationship building really resonates with these audiences. So if you're part of one of those organizations, thanks for thinking of me. If you enjoyed this episode with Desiree, Please share it with your friends and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's show. Remember, subscribing is always free. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review in Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance. I look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be interviewing another talent professional about their untold stories of leadership and networking. We'll explore their career challenges, work-life balance, and how they built a strong professional network on their way to becoming a successful leader. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On The Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On The Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.